Today we're going to be studying from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. So you are welcome to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, 6 to 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together one more time as we open up God's word. God, we do ask that as we spend time in your word right now, that you would teach us, that you would mold us, that you would shape us, and that you would give us deep confidence in Christ. Would you please reveal Christ to us in these moments, and would you draw us close to yourself through it? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a TV ad that I've seen a lot recently that depicts a few young children picking teams for a basketball game. It's kind of a goofy ad, but it makes me laugh most times. There's the two children who are the captains, a boy and a girl, and then a lineup of the players available to pick. They're elementary kids, they're young, they're not too big, and as the camera scans through the lineup of players available to pick, there's a few young children, and then in the middle there's Charles Barkley, who is 6'5 and is one of the all-time NBA greats, one of the best basketball players there's ever been. And of course, the girl with the first pick chooses Charles Barkley. It's an easy decision, isn't it? With him on her team, it's a guaranteed win. Our text for tonight from Colossians 2 is meant to give us great confidence in Christ as we seek to follow him. Over the course of our time so far in the book of Colossians, we've seen Paul's prayers for the Christians there in that city of Colossae. We've seen Paul's prayers. We've seen the beautiful image of this supreme and sufficient Christ, this Christ who's bigger than we could ever imagine, And we've even seen Paul's own striving and suffering in his own ministry for that church there. But now as we come to our text in chapter 2, Paul shifts. He shifts from this extended introduction of sorts 
to the core of his exhortation for the Christians there in Colossae. He wants the Christians there to walk in Christ, despite the challenge of false teaching that was present. We've gotten some hints of it in the first chapter, but we see it more poignantly in these verses. And the remainder of the letter fleshes out for these Christians what it looks like to walk in Christ in the midst of this challenge. And our text brings us to the first aspect of what this means, taking care not to be wooed into believing in falsehood. And of course, this isn't just a challenge that existed for them back then in Colossae. It's a challenge that we see and experience, at least in some ways today. We hear the gospel regularly and faithfully preached at this church, praise the Lord. But as we go about our lives, we hear so many mixed messages, don't we? We hear things that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ from every angle inside. In the news, in books, in conversations with friends, on Netflix, on billboards. We see it so many places. And some of these messages are obviously not the gospel. Some of these things we see and hear from so many sides, but other things are more disguised, or at least they're a little more tempting to buy into. And you may be tempted to choose to follow something else. But just like a child choosing Charles Barkley for her team, it's only with Christ that there is certain victory. In our text for this evening, Paul wants to give us great confidence in Christ. Everything that Christ is, everything that Christ done, has done, is all that we need. He has done the work, he has won the victory, and he has united us to himself in it all. And there's no need to go anywhere else. And this text calls out to us this, as you received Christ, so live for Christ, because you have Christ. And our passage begins with these lines in verses 6 to 7. They're important verses in the book of Colossians as a whole, and because in many ways they're the, the center of the entire letter. And all throughout his extended introduction in chapter 1, and even into the beginning of chapter 2, Paul's been moving to this point, moving into this exhortation in verses 6 and 7. And in verse 6 he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The Colossian Christians had received the true gospel in faith, they, they, they ought to live in light of it with full conviction and with full confidence moving forward for Christ. And that's why Paul made sure to remind them in chapter 1, verse 8, how they heard the gospel. They heard it from Epaphras, who was a faithful minister. Again, in verse 9, that's why Paul was praying in chapter 1, verse 9. He, he was praying that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's also why Paul lifted up Christ as the supreme and sufficient Christ in verses 15 and following in that chapter. This is the Christ they received and he's more glorious than they could ever imagine. And see even why Paul mentions his own ministry at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Even though he had never met them in person, he was suffering for them so that in chapter 2 verse 4 he says this, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 
everything in the letter so far has been driving to this exhortation in verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live for Christ. Firm confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And verse 7 goes on to describe this confidence a little bit more deeply. Rooted, built up, established. These are the words that Paul uses to define in, uh, th- this kind of confidence they ought to have. It's, it's a mix of a few different types of metaphors. There's building metaphors and there's farming metaphors. Just like a healthy plant grows its roots deep, and just like a good building rests on a firm foundation, Christians ought to have strong confidence in Christ, who he is, what he's done. He is what we must be rooted in. He is the foundation we must set everything upon. This is the gospel we read about in the scriptures. This is the gospel that we have been taught by those who have come before us. This is the gospel that is preached at this church. This is the gospel that we must trust, Christ and Christ alone. Nothing more, nothing less. But Paul doesn't also just want us to know these things, just to understand the concepts. He wants something more. He wants our hearts to even be moved by this. As we consider Christ, who he is, what, what, he, what he has done for us, as we receive Christ and we live for him, he wants our hearts to soar and overflow with thanksgiving. My hope and prayer as you meditate on these verses throughout the course of this evening and perhaps even in the future, tomorrow morning or this week, my prayer and hope is that your heart would well up with thanksgiving and praise to God for all that he has done for you in Christ. And so this is where Paul's getting to. He's driving to the main point in this letter, as you receive Christ, so live for Christ. And throughout chapters 2 and 3, moving forward in the letter, he's going to be describing different ways of what that looks like. And in verse 8, he gives us the first way to do that. And that's what this text that we have for us tonight speaks to. This first way to live for Christ, according to Colossians 2, is to make sure nobody takes you captive with false teaching. The image we get here is of those taken captive by a Roman general in the, coming back from the battlefield. And so you can imagine the general riding into his home city on a chariot, army in his wake, uh, the, the vic- followed by his victorious army. There's crowds cheering on every side in the streets. But then come the prisoners of war, chained, perhaps even wearing black clothing, symbolizing perhaps impending death. Hopeless, helpless, powerless, perishing. As you received Christ, so live for Christ and do not let yourself be taken captive by anything other than Christ. We don't want to become that kind of prisoner. We don't want to allow ourselves to go back into the bondage to death and sin that we had before we met Christ. We don't want to buy into any teaching that does not exalt Christ alone as our Savior and as our Lord. As to the false teaching in particular, we, don't, we only get hints of what the precise nature of the teaching was um, that Paul was speaking against. But we do know that Paul considered it to be completely contrary 
to the gospel of Christ. He describes it as philosophy. This kind of teaching somehow offered some sort of contrasting understanding of the world, a different way to see things that maybe seemed more intellectual or extra-religious or more meaningful than what other believers had heard. But Paul says it was really empty deceit, full of lies and empty of power. It was also human tradition. And this is the the same kind of thing that Jesus calls out the Pharisees for in Mark chapter 7. Those Pharisees were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This false teaching, it wasn't of Christ, it wasn't from God, it was human tradition. But it was also according to the elemental spirits of the world. This may have been related to people's belief in powers and spirits that controlled the universe and the world, but it was not according to the creator God, Christ by whom and for whom all things were created. It wasn't of him. And he sums it up, it's not according to Christ. It's like schoolyard gossip that at first seems so tantalizing, but the more it gets passed on, it shows itself and reveals itself to be untrue, powerless, and not grounded in anything real. We hear similar messages today, don't we? When we hear about finding our authentic self being the major purpose of our lives, when we hear that love is love no matter who or how, when we hear that if we just try harder, God will like us more. Friends, stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ, being rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. As you received Christ, so live in Christ. This is the call. But the good news is Paul doesn't just stop there. In fact, he's really just getting started, even in this passage. And what's amazing and wonderful about this passage is the way Paul equips us to be rooted and established in Christ and abounding in thanksgiving. And what's amazing is it's less focused on what is false and far more focused on what is true. He doesn't want to set our eyes on what is false as much as he wants us to look squarely at Christ and everything that we have in him. And that's what verses 9 to 15 do for us. And as we go through these verses, we see at least a few key realities about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done for us. So as you received Christ, so live for Christ. And Paul says, that's because you have Christ. So first of these things is that you are filled in Christ. Verse 9, in him, that is, in Christ, in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's a staggering statement. And it would hit us probably with even more force if Paul hadn't gone there before in this book. He spoke of it in chapter 1, verse 19. He said, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But even so, it's worth pausing on this reality for a moment. Because we have Jesus, fully man, yet fully God, the fullness of deity. 
100%. No lack. And in verse 10, the head of all rule and authority. You're considering following a teaching that is according to the elemental spirits of the world? How about Jesus, who's the head and rule of all authority? Amazing. Where Paul's reflections in chapter 1 focus mainly on who Christ is and what he's done here in chapter 2, he takes it a step further. It's not simply that the fullness of deity dwells in Christ, but also that you have been filled in him. It's not just that Christ is that, but all who have trusted in Christ are filled up with Christ. You and I are not the fullness of God as Christ is, but you can be filled with Christ. No room for anything else, but no need for anything else. One of the great simple pleasures of life is sitting down and enjoying a wonderful homemade meal um, where there's plenty of food on the table for everyone, And after you've eaten the main course, if you're like me, some dessert and maybe even some more dessert, um, then someone might try and pass you a plate and say, hey, here, have another helping. But then all you can say is, I'm so full, I can't eat another bite. The man Jesus Christ, who's the creator God, fills you. And you have no need for anything else. United with the fullness of God. So there's being filled in Christ, and there's also new life in Christ, as Paul continues to tick down the list of these amazing realities of Christ. There's new life in Christ. Verses 11 and 12 describe this by using an image of circumcision to talk about how believers are united with Christ. And when Paul speaks of circumcision of Christ here, he's, he's not referring to the Jewish ritual, but rather to the crucifixion. Here, we get Jesus, not just one piece of his body, but his whole body cut off from the land of the living. He died, and in him, the Colossian Christians shared spiritually with this circumcision, with this death, And Paul even goes further. He he reinforces this by by saying that these Christians were buried with him in baptism as well. Their former lay of life, put to death, gone, totally dead. But it's not just Christ's death that they're united with, but also his resurrection life that believers share in. Christians, as they were circumcised with him, buried with him in baptism, they're also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Those who participate in Christ's death also participate in Christ's resurrection life. There is new life in Christ. It's like Paul put it in Galatians 2.20, as Robin read out for us earlier, I have been crucified with Christ It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All who trust in Christ are united to him in both his death and his life. Praise God. It's a good, good thing. It's good, good news. But Paul doesn't stop there. 
There's forgiveness in Christ as well. And verse 13 reminds us of this. It says that we who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Wonderful verses right here. Because every one of us, apart from Christ, is spiritually dead. It's because of our sins. We're sinners to the very core. It's not a popular thing to talk about in our day and age. Um, Whether it's in the words of blogs or the pages of pop psychology books, or whether it's embedded in the shows we watch or the ads we see, believing that we're spiritually dead because of our sins isn't very popular. Being in need of forgiveness grates against what we want to believe about ourselves or what our world wants to say about us being a blank slate that we can make anything of ourselves. The problem, though, is that the Bible paints a very different picture of who we are apart from Christ. Here in these verses, we get a picture. We get a picture of a record of debt that stands against us. It's like a lawyer's list. It's an official legal document on official letterhead of every single thing that we've done wrong going down the list. At the bottom of the list, there's a verdict. Guilty. And the debt has to be paid. The practice was to nail charges against a criminal to the cross that they hung on. It's much like the false charges that they hung above Jesus' head and they nailed to the cross above him. And our charges, for all who are in Christ, our true record of debt, not the false record, but the true record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands was nailed to the cross of Christ. Your sins forgiven. Your debt paid. Your guilt taken away by Jesus for you, in your place. Isaiah put it this way, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How wonderful it is here in verse 13 that we're reminded that anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We call out to Christ for mercy and grace. We receive it, forgiven of our sins, because Christ bore them on the tree for us. In Christ, you have freedom from your sins, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame. It's like the hymn says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Maybe you're here tonight and you feel a deep burden of guilt. 
Jesus bore it for you. Maybe you're ashamed as you look at that record of debt that is yours. It was nailed to the cross of Christ. Maybe you're here and you don't believe that Jesus could forgive you. He paid it all. Maybe you're here tonight and you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. If you're here tonight and you have not called out to Jesus before, I urge you, call out to Jesus tonight in faith that he died for you. And you will be forgiven, washed white as snow, your sins separated from you as far as the east is from the west. And you don't find that anywhere else, only in Christ. But that's not all yet. One more thing Paul brings out in these verses is that there is also victory in Christ. Verse 15 reminds us that through Christ, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him. There's not only freedom from sin, but there's victory in Christ. The hymn puts it really well. He breaks the power of canceled sin. Sin has no power over the one who is free in Christ. The very powers that thought they had achieved victory when they crucified Jesus were actually wrong. It was actually through the death of Christ on that cross and his resurrection from the dead that won the victory over sin and evil and death. And for all who are with him, who are in him, that victory is theirs as well. Death has no power and no sting for all who are in Christ. It's the Roman victory parade all over again. But this time... It's Christ who's riding the chariot of victory. And it's us with him, he who is leading captives in his wake. And though these evil powers may still exist, and though we may at times feel them more poignantly, and though they may have appear to have sway, they have no true authority, and they have been defeated. And so there's no need to fear. No need to follow them. Because Christ's victory is ours and it is sure. So as we come to the end of this passage, what does this mean for us? Three things to encourage you with. First, there's something to know. Know that you can trust this Christ. In a world that pulls us to many different false teachings of many different kinds, Many false teachings about who God is, about what life is all about, about ourselves, or about how that all fits together. In a world that pulls us in so many different ways, know that you can root your confidence firmly in Jesus Christ. He is worthy of your confidence. Everything you need is in him. And you are united with him if you are, if you have put your faith in him. So you can know that you can trust him and have deep confidence in Christ. Second, there's something to do. I would encourage you to take these truths about who Christ is and about what he's done and how he's united himself to you and preach them to yourself regularly. Remind yourself of these things day by day so that when the difficult times come, they're rooted deeply within you and that your foundation is firm. And 
preach them to yourself so that they root themselves deep within your soul to the point where your heart sings with confidence and overflowing thanksgiving to God. But finally, there's something to enjoy. This passage is really about wondering at who Christ is. And so I, I would encourage you to wonder at the reality that this is the Christ that you have. These aren't just abstract truths. These are, these are for you. And so take time to wonder that this is the Christ you have. And this might mean taking some time tonight or later this week to meditate on these verses again or perhaps read through the book of Colossians and just res- uh, revel in the beauty that is Christ. Perhaps it may mean remembering in your own life how you've seen Christ work in these particular ways in your own life. Perhaps there are certain situations or circumstances that you've gone through and you can see Christ working in your life very clearly through them. I'd encourage you to remember those because it is a wonder that all these things are yours if you are in Christ. He's not far, but near. To close, I, I read a story that, that goes like this. It's again about a Roman emperor. The story goes that there was a Roman emperor returning from a victorious battle campaign. And as he rode into his home city with his army in tow, the streets were lined with people cheering him on, just like we talked about earlier. But his family was in the center of the town, in the town square, sitting on a platform. His wife and his children, from oldest to youngest. And as he drove closer in his chariot, his army marching behind him, the crowd cheering him on, his youngest son couldn't wait any longer. And as he saw his father come into view, he jumped out of his chair, off the platform, and scurried through the crowd, weaving his way around people until he got right up to the chariot his father was riding in. And just as he was about to take a step onto the chariot, a Roman soldier swooped him up in his arms and said, you can't go there. Do you know who that is? And the child with a wry smile said, he may be your emperor, but he's my father. You realize Jesus Christ is not far but near. He is the fullness of deity in bodily form, but you are filled in him if you've trusted in him. What a wonderful reality to know that you can be near to this Christ, the fullness of God, and be filled in him. And so as you received Christ, so live for Christ because you have Christ. Let's pray together. Well, God, we do thank you for Jesus. <laughs> we thank you for the Full, for, for that we can be filled in Christ, for the new life in Christ, for forgiveness in Christ, for the victory that is in Christ, that it can be ours too. We praise you that our debt is paid, <laughs> that you've brought us to yourself and for your great love for us. And we pray that you would give us deep confidence in Christ and that our hearts would overflow with thanksgiving to you because of that. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.